Look, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning, so uh, you can go ahead and turn to Acts 2. We're going to look at verses 22 through 36. If you haven't been with us uh, before today, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and today we, we, we get to the second chapter, as I said, in the 22nd verse. Uh, we've been here for several weeks now, and uh, you know, the, if you look at the book of Acts, the, maybe the beginning chapter, the little title page in your Bible, perhaps, I hope you have a copy of God's Word. If you don't, you can use the one in the chair rack in front of you. Hopefully there's one there. And that's yours. If you want to take that, you can. Uh, if you need a Bible, that we want that to be a blessing to you. Uh, but when you look at the book of Acts, in Acts 1-1, maybe that little subheading or, or big heading there where it says Acts, it probably says something in your Bible, something like the Acts of the Apostles. And it, that's true. It is the book about the Acts of the Apostles, but more appropriately said, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the apostles, because really there's nothing to be said if it's just the apostles going to work. Ultimately, it's the, the work, the acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles, the disciples of Jesus. And this is him surging through the inception of the church that we're going to look at today. It's really an appropriate season for our church because uh, we have, our church is like, I don't know, five years ago, I don't know, over half of you guys weren't even here. So I, I thought that it would be really cool to, to look at this book because we, in a lot of ways, are a very old church because this church has been here since like 1850. Some of you guys didn't know that, for real. It's like the oldest church in Lauderdale County. I'm not making that up. But in a lot of ways, it's a young church because a lot of your faces are new to this body of believers. And I thought it would be really appropriate, and I believe that God led me here to look at the book of Acts to see that we can just join him for the ride and let it be his acts in us, not the other way around. I want to paint a picture first before we read, and that is uh, what we've seen already. Uh, from, from the point of view of Peter's audience, he's going to be the one preaching and has been last week. But you know, it's easy for us to see things from Peter's point of view, but I want to switch that around and see things from the, the point of view of his audience that we're going to look at today. First of all, there are thousands of Jews from all over Jerusalem that are there for a feast called Pentecost. Put that map up there, if you will, Greg, that, that uh, we've been looking at a couple of weeks here. They've come from all over. This, this is a list of names that we saw a couple weeks ago, and I mean all over, right? From east to west, they've come to Jerusalem for this feast week called Pentecost. Pentecost was the time that they celebrated that God had given them the law, and so they had a big feast week, and it was a big celebration. Uh, here, they're celebrating something that God has given them as well, not the law, but the Spirit. And so that's what we've already seen, that God has poured out His Spirit on these people. The only thing is, you do have thousands of Jews from all over Jerusalem that are there for Pentecost. Probably a million people in the city total, but at least thousands that are probably gathered at the temple because that's about the only place that could house so many people at this time. Suddenly, again, from the audience's point of view, there is uh, this sudden commotion. Things start getting kind of crazy because 120 people start coming out of this upper room and they're speaking various languages. And again, it probably happens at the temple, but it says that there's this large commotion and they're kind of freaked out. They're like, what is that? Well, all these people are speaking different languages, but the weird part is that, look, it wouldn't be weird for them to speak in different languages. Look at all the regions that are represented here. Only thing is, they weren't from those regions. They were from one little town called Galilee. They were blue-collar dudes and women from Galilee, and then suddenly they're speaking languages and dialects as if they're world travelers. And clearly, this is not normal. This is a supernatural thing. And so what happens next is that Peter gets everyone's attention. One of those guys, one of those 120, the apostle Peter, he stands up and gets everyone's attention, and he says, look, what's happening here is crazy, right? But it's happening just as your God said it would happen. And we looked at that last week in Joel's prophecy. He said it's a sign, and signs have meaning. They point to things. And the sign, he said, is that God is bringing salvation. 
That's what we saw in verse 21, which we read at the last of our time last week when it said, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter is saying that day is today. You call upon the name of the Lord now, you will be saved. But no one has said anything. Think about it. No one at this point has said anything about Jesus in this sermon. He simply said, you know, Yahweh told us in, in Joel chapter 2 that something crazy would happen. The Spirit would be poured out. You call upon the name of the Lord. But not yet has he said the name of Jesus. But now he's going to bring Jesus into the conversation. Essentially, Peter's going to say, Jesus is that Lord. So his way of saying his name is the highest of all names, like we sang about just a moment ago. He's the one who brought that salvation. And so Peter's main thrust, both last week and this week, is that what is happening among them should come as no surprise. You know why? Because God is keeping his promise. He says, this shouldn't be surprising because God is simply delivering on his promises. And that's what God does, which is unusual to us because when leaders make promises to us from a human standpoint, it's, it's not very usual. It's, it's uncommon that a leader keeps his promises, right? That's what's happening right now with all these presidential campaigns. Lots of promises. We love promises, right? Who cares about promises unless they're going to be delivered upon? While our leaders may make promises and not keep them, I'm going to make a differentiation here. God will always and forever keep his promises. He's not like our leaders. He is greater than our leaders. And when he makes a promise, our default toward promises may be to be skeptic toward leaders. We must be optimistic and hopeful, to use Chris's words just a moment ago, when God makes promises. And the reason why? It's because God never fails to keep his promises. And this is what's in the heart of Peter's message. As he's quoted Joel, he's now going to quote uh, David in Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Let's look at Acts 2. <clears throat> We're going to start in verse 21, picking up the last verse from, from Joel 2. Starting in verse 1, it says this, <clears throat> And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, starting now in verse 22, Peter's still preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, there's the name. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and he's not going to quote Psalm 16. David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also was well in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The sermon is heating up. And next week we're going to look at his application, and I'm really excited about that. You see it a couple times here, the the name of the Lord. In verse 21, he says that the name of the Lord shall be saved. At the name of the Lord. The Lord, in verse 21, runs right into an official introduction to Jesus of Nazareth in verse 22. It's his way of saying, you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Let me introduce you to him. Let me introduce you to the Lord that Joel is referring to there. And in verses 22 through 24, he starts speaking about Jesus. I want you to pay attention to something. He talks about verse 22, Jesus' life. Verse 23, Jesus' death. And then verse 24, Jesus' resurrection. You'll see this. Look at this. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. Listen, here's his life and ministry. Attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 23 then says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, now his death. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And here's the resurrection, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs, that's the deep pain of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What he's saying here is that with works and wonders and signs, his life and ministry was attested by God. That's what he says in John 3, 2. Uh, Nicodemus said this about Jesus. He wasn't a believer at the time, Nicodemus. He said, this man, came to Jesus, says, this man came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. He knew. This is an unbeliever, and yet he knew. He said, this guy can only be from God, for no one, he says, can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Peter is just backing that up. Attested to you by God. Also, his death, which was what we saw in verse 23. The plan his death was. The plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, God was not just active in Jesus' life through signs and wonders and works, but God was active in Jesus' death. That's why it says, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he then turns right around and says, you crucified and killed. Notice that that's two things that seem like they're running against one another. The plan and foreknowledge of God and the responsible criminal activity of man. Well, how can those things coexist? Well, they've, they've coexisted before. That God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. Genesis 50 verse 20 is another time of a murderous intent and yet God's salvation with Joseph. And it says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is not new. What this is, is that it's man's murderous intent, but God's saving sovereign plan. At Calvary, God used a human plot of murder to bring about a divine plan of rescue. So in other words, God was at work in Jesus' life and ministry. He was at work even in Jesus' death. But now Peter's going to say that God was at work in his resurrection. It says that his resurrection was accomplished by God. It says it was impossible for the grave to keep Jesus. I love that. That's like if there's a a basketball game or a football game and saying, well, how's this matchup lined up? It's impossible for the other team to win. That's not really what you want to hear if you're a fan of that team. You know what I'm saying? But that's what Peter is saying is it's not just a mismatch. It's not even possible that death could have defeated him. It wasn't a fair fight. It's impossible that death could have grabbed him and held him. And the reason why 
is because it was and is impossible for the promises of God to not come to fulfillment. It's impossible. If God makes a promise, it will come to pass. We saw one such promise last week in the coming of the Spirit prophesied by Joel. And now we're going to see another in the writings of David about the resurrection of the Messiah. If you're waiting for like something to be on the screen as far as notes go, I'm going to do the same thing that I did last week, and that'll be toward the end of our message just as a way of application. And so what I want to do now is I want to do what Peter does, and that is that I want to, he, he is preaching, and so I want to explain as he explains, and then we'll sort of backload our application at the end and see where we can take away uh, from this, okay? So let's look at verse 25 as, uh, as the passage continues. It says, For David says concerning him, and concerning Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Quoting from Psalm 16 here, keep going. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You, made, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now here's the thing. This was written hundreds and hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years ago, before the events that are happening in our passage in Acts 2 today. And Peter is saying that David, even though he wrote this psalm hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he had an immediate context into which he was writing, but David was really prophesying about the life of Jesus. David was writing about God saving him from premature death in its context. But Peter took this to have a greater fulfillment in the fact that the Messiah was going to be delivered from permanent death. That's why he says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You know, the Old Testament doesn't present a fully developed theology of heaven and hell. We later get that in the New Testament more fully explained. But when they use the word Hades, it's the, it's the Greek word for uh, the, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, Sheol. And you can maybe simplify that and say Hades just means the grave, but it's a little bit more than that. It was their term for where the souls of the dead go because they didn't have a really full understanding of heaven and hell. They would say Hades is sort of a, a lump term to say it's the realm of the dead. And that's what their word was for that. David is saying, you will not abandon my my soul to stay dead is what he's saying. He goes on to say, you won't let your holy one see corruption. Literally the word corruption there, what he's saying is, you won't let my body see decay. You won't let it see decay. What happens to dead bodies? Eventually they decay. They decay and they break down. Peter's audience knows though where David's body is. They know it. It's, it's located right over there in southern Jerusalem. You can go and visit the grave, they would say. And so what Peter's saying is, well, then who is David talking about? If he's talking about somebody whose, whose life won't stay dead, he's talking about someone whose body won't stay in a state of decay, well, who's he talking about? He won't let your Holy One see corruption. And then he talks about paths of life with your presence. What Peter's getting at is that David is speaking of one who will not stay in the grave, but will be resurrected. And he couldn't have been talking about himself because in verse 29, look at it. Couldn't have been talking about himself. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died, Hades, and was buried, corruption, and his tomb is with us to this day, 30. Being therefore a prophet, so in other words, he was speaking about things to come, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. 
Now, this is some Old Testament jargon here. What, what, Paul, what Peter is saying is that long time ago, God promised, and David knew that God promised that there would come one after him in his throne, his kingdom, that would never end. David's kingdom would end. Solomon, his son's kingdom would end because those guys would eventually die and it would pass on. But God told David that one of your descendants, his kingdom would never end. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, he says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And that's true of Solomon, his son, but this next part is not. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Later on, much later on, hundreds of years later on, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, the angel said to Mary, who was with child, said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be a great, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's a special baby, (laughs) y'all. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, that is Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see all the, the full pictures coming together here. Peter is painting this picture. Verses 30 through 32. I'm going to read verse 30 again. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants over his throne, he, that is David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. In other words, he didn't stay dead. Nor did his flesh see corruption. Verse 32 then says, This Jesus, he keeps saying that, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Just as God's promise through Joel was fulfilled in the Spirit's arrival, God's promise through David was fulfilled in the Messiah's arrival and death and resurrection. And the cool thing is that Peter speaks of this as an irrefutable fact that it happened just 50 days ago, and Jesus was resurrected just 10 days ago. Sometimes we forget about the context here. You know what 50 days ago was? August 26th. That's not that long ago. You think, well, I can't remember what I did yesterday, so it seems long ago, but it's really not. 50 days ago is not a long time. And for these guys in this audience, 50 days ago, Jesus was crucified, buried, and he vacated his own grave. But just 10 days ago, Jesus ascended to the throne of majesty on high. He ascended into heaven. Ten days ago, I think, was August, or October 5th. What happened on October 5th in your calendar? I don't know either. But it wasn't that long ago, okay? I can't remember that day either. But it wasn't that long ago. And the point is just that, that we kind of get lost in the timeline here. But ten days ago is not that long ago. And Peter is saying, like, guys, you can go talk, about, talk to people about this. These guys saw it happen, is what Peter is saying. This 120 people that are speaking different languages, miraculously, who knows how that's happening, he's saying, Spirit of God. He's saying, this didn't happen that long ago. And of this truth that I'm telling you, these guys are all witnesses, an irrefutable fact with witnesses. You know, Joseph Smith's supposed vision that led to Mormonism, you know how many witnesses it had? Zero. The prophet Muhammad Supposed vision that led to Islam. You know how he received that vision, supposed vision? Alone in a cave. Do you know how this went down? With a whole bunch of witnesses. That's what sets this apart from every other world religion. This isn't fantasy. This is history. This is reality. 
by the way, those guys don't even lay claim. They don't even, they don't even pretend that they're witnesses. They were alone. Not this story. While we certainly believe by faith, it is absolutely by faith and not by sight. The resurrect, resurrection is a reliable eyewitness testimony. Guys, droves of people saw Jesus alive. Droves of people saw Jesus alive. In the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven, which was just weeks prior to what we're reading right now, he saw Mary Magdalene in John 20. The disciples, mine is Thomas in John 20. The disciples with Thomas in John 20. Cleopas and a friend of his in Luke 24. His half-brother James in 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us about that. 500 unnamed followers at one time in 1 Corinthians 15, we read about that. According to Luke, just a few verses prior to this in Acts 1-3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many Proofs. You know what that means? He told them over and over again, come see, I'll, I'll prove it to you. I'm alive by many proofs. It says, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And this isn't like a doppelganger. I saw a video one time of somebody that was dressed up like Taylor Swift. And they, she really looked like Taylor Swift. And she was walking down the, the street in like Las Vegas or something. And all these people were stopping to take photos with her because she was a pretty convincing copy. But you know, the thing is, the people that were stopping to take photos with her weren't her friends. They weren't her family. These guys were not duped. And they knew Jesus. They were his closest friends, his half-brother, his mother, his disciples that he spent years with. They would have known if it was a fake. They would have known if it was a duped copy. But the fact of the matter is that they were confirmed with many witnesses and many proofs and many speakings and teachings that his apostles, then several women followers and others saw him ascend into the clouds and the angels told them, he said, why are you standing around? Go and he did exactly what he said. Do you understand that this is not fantasy? This is history. Irrefutable. Eyewitness testimonies, listen, so convincing were these events that nearly all of his best friends that would have known the difference. It's reality. Nearly all of his best friends, 11 or 10, no 11. According to church history, 11 of these guys, his closest buddies, they would be martyred because they were so convinced that their best friend and their rabbi and their teacher that they knew very, very well, they were so convinced that they gave their lives for him. Either they were idiots that had terrible vision and terrible ears, or this is reality. They knew Jesus well. They would not have been duped by a double. They gave their lives for him. They had nothing to gain in doing so. What, do they have reputation? So what? They die. Money? No, they die. What do you have to gain by giving your life for a message that they know is fake? Do you see the reliability of this testimony here? You don't give your life for something that you, you either give your life for something you're fooled into thinking is real or it's really real. That's it. That's the only two options here. And they weren't fooled. I guarantee you that because they would have known the difference. They had nothing to gain and everything to lose by being loyal to him to the point of death. Guys, these are promises fulfilled centuries in the making. And the amazing thing is that this globally unstoppable movement, and it is a globally unstoppable movement, Amen. 
This globally unstoppable movement was not spearheaded by an influential Caesar or a ruler of a large empire. It started with a small handful of blue-collared Middle Easterners behind a desert handyman turned itinerant preacher, and it swept the globe in the power of the Spirit of God. Come on. Not fantasy. Reality. History. On paper, there is absolutely no reason that Christianity should be alive at all, much less a global movement, unless one thing is true, that it is true, and that God is behind it. There is only one way. It's if God is behind it. And of that, Peter says, we're all witnesses. There's 120 people that are doing something that doesn't make any sense. It's a miracle. He says, we're all witnesses of this. And if you see 120 people doing something miraculous and then all saying the same thing, you may just be convinced that what they're saying is true. And guys, God is still the same today as he was then. We forget that. That God is still the same today as he was then. He makes and he keeps promises. And when he delivers on those promises, people are blown away and forever changed. That is what is happening in this church is that we're beginning to be a little bit blown away by what God is doing. Am I right? And when you're a little bit blown away, or a lot blown away by what God is doing, you start to talk about that. And then onlookers say, what's going on over there? And that's happening. And maybe you're here today because somebody told you that something exciting was happening here. You know why? Because it's not fantasy. It's reality. And the only way that it makes sense is if God is at work. By the way, Peter had never even preached a sermon. And he's preaching a pretty good one. He never even preached a sermon. Without sermon prep, he's here preaching from Joel and the Psalms. There's a principle here, church, and that is that God changes hearts. And if you are filled by the Spirit and have given your life to him, will you just let him change you? Will you just allow him to change you? There's a couple of things I want you to take away here. We're talking about God keeping his promises, and there's a couple of things that I want to identify. Uh, two things. Number one, that God promises the victory over sin and death. God promises the victory over sin and death. Can we just thank God for that? God promises the victory over sin and death. The implication, the outcome of what we've read about this morning is that of this irrefutable fact is what Peter goes on to say then in verses 33 through 35. He says, if all that's true, if God raised Jesus up in verse 32, of that we're all witnesses, that really happened. He says, being therefore, verse 33, exalted at the right hand of God. I want you to look at that phrase for a second. At the right hand of God. We're going to see this echoed in just a moment in that indented part in verses 34 and 35. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, as Jesus, has poured out this, that is the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What Peter's saying is, let what you're seeing be proof of my message. You, you're questioning my message? Explain this miracle. 
Okay, he's saying, let, let what you're seeing be proof of this, that Jesus has poured out. By the way, the word there for poured out, the Greek word, it means dumped out. It's like, like what you, the coaches get with the Gatorade bath, right? It's not like, uh, let me just pour you a glass of tea, right? Although that's how some of you guys pour your tea, is you just dump it out, right? But this is what's happening. Is it, what he's saying is Jesus is pouring out. He is like dousing you in a big bucket of Gatorade with his spirit. What you're seeing is Jesus dousing this place in a wildfire of the spirit of God. David did not write about himself in verses 34 and 35 because what Peter is saying is David did not bodily ascend to the right hand of God. Jesus did. He's quoting from Psalm 110 verse 1. By the way, Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. That's just a neat little tidbit there. The first Lord that you see in verse 34, it says, The Lord said to my Lord. The first Lord is God the Father. The second Lord is the Messiah. And so what Peter is saying is, the Father said to the Messiah. It gives readers a heavenly perspective of the ascension. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You ever think about this? That at the ascension of Jesus, you have the onlookers that are there and they watch as their buddy just all of a sudden starts levitating, right? And they're like, okay, so this is normal. See you later. I always think about that perspective. I always think about that point of view, right? Because they see him and he goes up. And then they're all just kind of standing around like, what in the world was that? And then the angels say, what are you standing around for? It happened just like you said it was going to happen. But I want to suggest something to you. Do you ever think about the opposite point of view? Do you ever think about the point of view of heaven? Right? You ever think about that point of view before? I never did until I started looking at this passage this week. That as Jesus is, is ascending, the, the language is not Jesus' departure. It's Jesus' arrival. You know what the language is? It's Psalm 110 verse 1 is Jesus' arrival versus, as opposed to departure, it is arrival. You ever notice that when you think about your memories, you see them from your own point of view? Like you don't see it like it's a video. You see it like it's like you're re-experiencing it. And sometimes those memories that you have are so deeply engraved that you can even, if I say, remember what happened when you were five or 10 or something, you may think about a memory. Um, a few years ago, it was a while ago. Let me, okay, let me back up. It was a while ago. I'm not this big of an idiot. You're about to lose a lot of respect for me and think you really are pretty dumb. I was golfing with a buddy of mine, and um, we were, I'm still a bad golfer, but I was also an immature golfer at that point, and not a good combination on a golf course. Anyway, so uh, his ball went in a ditch, and he's like, I'm going to play it out of the ditch. So he jumps down into the ditch. I park our cart beside that ditch, but the, the cart is then between the green where he's trying to hit the ball and where he is in the ditch and where his ball is. So he says, I'm going to need you to move the cart. It's like, no problem. I'm, you know, 19 years old. I can function a golf cart, right? You would think. So I'm sitting in the passenger seat and thinking, I'll just use my left foot and my left hand. I got a pretty bad left hand and left foot, you guys, apparently, because I turned the wheel all the way, stepped on the gas, and it started to turn. So if the ditch was here and the cart was here, it started to turn. And the next thing I knew, I kept turning, and it was suddenly pointing towards the ditch again. And then I I wisely was like, I should probably straighten the wheel out. So I did. I straightened the wheel out as it's heading towards the ditch, and I started to hit the brake because I'm like, this is about to be really, really bad. And uh, for some reason, the brake wasn't doing what I wanted the brake to do. So I was like, in the moment, this made a lot of sense in my head at the moment. I thought, I must be pressing the wrong pedal. So then I smashed that gas, brother. And my buddy was in the ditch. 
like right there. And my point of view was that I'm going to kill my friend. I'm going to, I'm going to kill my best friend. He's right there. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a little ditch. It was a big ditch. It was probably as deep as the floor is right there. And so this one was going to hurt. And I knew that. So I, I ramped off and that thing just nosed out. Boom, right into the bottom of the ditch. I felt like I broke both of my legs. And then I got up and walked away. I think I probably broke a rib, but I'm good. I say that to say, when I thought about memories from my POV, that was the first one I thought about. Because from my point of view, I was like, this is going to hurt. But from his point of view, he thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> and he jumped out of the way very quickly. But I, I just say, I know that's silly, but when we think of our memories, we don't think of the reverse point of view. But I think that this is a really, really helpful one to consider the reverse point of view. You have 120 people standing there thinking, whoa, this is jarring. This is discomforting. Our Messiah is departing. And as amazing it is, there's a feeling of loneliness that perhaps is settling in. But don't you know that heaven's point of view was a victory parade, the likes of which this world has never seen? You have the Mount of Olives of departure, but you have the heavenly throne room of arrival. And it's in that context that I envision this passage. The Lord said to my Lord, the Father looks at the Son as he's coming, and he says, Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He says, well done, have a seat, we're almost done. What a moment. Jesus saw it coming. Luke twenty two sixty nine 69 says, this is at the end of his ministry. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Jesus saw it coming. The right hand, in context, that's a way of saying that the, right, the Son of Man will be given um, derivative authority. The person at the right hand of the king or the ruler has been given derivative authority. They can call the shots on behalf of the authority of the one in the ultimate seat. And that's the seat that Jesus is in. He says, sit here until... Your enemies are subdued. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26, talking about those enemies, Paul is talking about the end of time. And he says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so here's what we have, church. We are functioning in this already not yet season. We're already, Jesus has put his enemies underneath his feet, and yet he has not yet ultimately destroyed every ruler and every power and every dominion, and finally death itself. He's conquered the grave. Death is powerless, but he has not finally dealt the death blow to death. Guys, I want you to hear me say this because I think it's a great encouragement, and that is that Satan's days are numbered. His days are numbered. That being said, the enemy is still at work. His days are numbered, but the enemy is still at work. And honestly, man, in one way or another, we are living in this middle ground. You may be wrestling with a cancer diagnosis of yourself or a loved one. You may be dealing with the insurmountable weight of some conflict, some stressor, some relationship that feels like it's beyond repair, Guys, the human experience is one of, of weight. It's one of, of heavy, at times, discouragement, man, and pain and hurt. And some of y'all are living that right now. And if it's not you right now, 
it may one day be you. It may have been you. And maybe you're, you're at, a, at a good time. Or maybe you are in the deepest of valleys. Whether it's now or later, I just need you to hear me say this once again. That Satan's days are numbered. The enemy is at work. But the victory is fulfilled. It, it's over with. The enemy is not giving Jesus a fight. It is over. These are his last blows. But fate is decided. And that should bring the second thing, which is a very comforting certainty. And those are the certainties of grace and mercy, of mercy and grace. The certainties of mercy and grace. Mercy, a very simple definition, is not receiving something you do deserve, typically with negative connotation. Mercy is not receiving something you do deserve. It's, it's, a, it's withholding, right, in a positive light. Grace is receiving something you don't deserve, and that has a very positive connotation. It's a gift, and certainly in the gospel we have both. And that leads me into the last verse, and this is such a powerful, and I wish honestly that we could just run right into verses 37 through 41, but then I'd spoil next week. Let's just look at 36. He says, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain, don't miss those words, for certain, if you want to underline them, it may be worth it, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The words uh, for certain there are, are really neat because it's the Greek word, Asphalos. If you were to look at it, it looks like our word for asphalt. In fact, it's where we get our word for asphalt. And the meaning of for certain or asphalos, it literally means something that is secure or something that is assured. The way that asphalt is supposed to be. Our asphalt is not asphalos in Meridian, is it? It's like you got potholes all over the place. It's like this isn't very fixed. This isn't very secure. And so this is not, our asphalt is not true to what this word really, really means. Uh, maybe I should, I should take this to City Hall and just say, you know, I'm not going to do that. But the word for asphalt comes from this Greek word that means something that is secure or something that is assured. Why that matters is that Peter is saying he wants to aim to give them certainty concerning Jesus and the promises of God. He's saying it's as sure as sure can possibly be. He says, you got the witnesses. You got an empty grave. What more do you need to see? This is a sure thing. He says that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It's kurios is Lord, and Christos is Christ. But more importantly, what he's saying is the word for Yahweh. He's saying Old Testament, we use that word Lord. I'm saying he is Yahweh. He is Yahweh. Jesus is not just the Son of God. He is God. He is Yahweh in the flesh. In other words, he has ultimate and sovereign authority. He says he's Christos, which means he is the anointed and chosen one, the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah. That's him. The one who established and saved Yahweh's people, that was him. And the heavy thing is, he's showcasing Jesus' glory. But, the, man, the worst of news, he says, he's both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You love Yahweh? He was here, and you killed him. You long for the Messiah? He was here. And you killed him. And that Jesus, he has ultimate authority. David said, and tell him, make your enemies your footstool. That word footstool, it's a military metaphor for a leader who has their foot on the neck of his enemies. Here's why that's so heavy. 
Because the scary thing is what Peter is saying is, Jesus is alive. He's sitting on the throne. He's got his, his foot on the neck of the enemy, and you just killed him. You killed the Messiah. God raised him up, sent the Spirit as evidence, as proof, and now the guy that you just killed is in the position of judgment. Do you hear this? The guy that you just did pretty dirty now has your soul in his hands. And you'd expect the message then from Jesus' boy, Peter, to be, now say your prayers because you're toast. Right? You expect that to be the message. The guy that you just killed, he ain't, alive. He ain't dead no more. And he's got all the power. So you better say your prayers because you're done for. That's what you expect the message to be, but that's not it. The message, thank you, God, is mercy and grace. Because you killed him. We killed him. And man, I'm thankful the message isn't your toast. The message of the gospel is that you would not perish, but have eternal life. May we never grow tired of that message. May it be the center of it all, the center of this church, that we don't receive a fight, we receive forgiveness. We don't receive a lashing, we receive his love. We don't receive enmity, we receive an embrace. Guys, the promise is that all enemies will bear the weight of God's wrath, but that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you and I are given an option. You are given an option today. Will you be a sin-bearing enemy with the Messiah's boot on your neck? Or will you be a forgiven friend? The option is very easy. Repent and believe in the gospel. You don't have to suffer the weight of your sin. Jesus has bore it for you, and he's alive. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth that's been given to him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you don't have to be an enemy of his. You can be a friend, a brother, a sister. You are guilty of his blood. You and I are guilty of his blood. But we can be forgiven by that same blood. Wow. In verse 23, backing up. I wanted to point something out as we wrap it up. Don't put your things up yet, okay? I hate to say things like wrapping up because it triggers things. Verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is so cool because in English it doesn't pop, but in Greek it does pop. The word for foreknowledge there, again, this is the foreknowledge of God in the death of Jesus. The word for foreknowledge is one that you would recognize. It's prognosis. It's prognosis. It's the words beforehand being pro and gnosis, which means to know. It's know beforehand, prognosis. And that's what a prognosis is in our, well, it's supposed to be at least. It's the likely course of a disease or an ailment so that you can get out in front of it. You want a doctor to have a prognosis, don't you? Say, so give me a prognosis, doctor, so that we can get out in front of this thing and have some sort of a solution. Guys, the fact of the matter is that we come into this world with a terminal illness. The wages of sin is death. We got a problem. But God has a prognosis, and God's prognosis includes a plan. 
that Jesus' death was no accident. It was no mishap. It was not back, it's not Jesus backed into a corner, an unforeseen corner by his killers. For endless eternity past, God was getting out in front of our terminal disease and providing the ultimate cure. That's the gospel. And the response to that is very simple for everyone in this room, believer or unbeliever. If you are in Christ, will you just celebrate that God has kept and will keep his promises? That the battles that you face every day have an expiration date. And Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, looking at the Father, just saying, you just give me the word, bud. You just tell me when. The last enemy defeated is going to be death, and it's going to be over. He's just waiting for the word. And there's good news in that, y'all. But if you do not know Christ as Savior, the response is very simple. Lay claim to the God who delivered on his promises and will do so again. God keeps his promises. And when it says in verse 21 that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, he means you. He means you in the sin and the shame of your past or present He means you in the regret of your past and your decision-making, in that relationship, in that turmoil, in that foolishness. Even you who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God, as heaven's point of view that day of his ascension was a victory parade, the likes of which this world has never seen. But I want to give you some good news, that one day we will be given that point of view, that Jesus will come again. And we will not be discomforted by his departure. We will be forever celebratory and comforted by his arrival. Are you ready?